Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. Good morning. Today's scripture is found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, and Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Matthew six twenty-five to 34 Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more about more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today we continue in our series on Ephesians 6 and the armor of God. Maybe we call it a series on the armor of God as illustrated by Lord of the Rings because that's what I'm going to do because it just fits so perfectly. And so today as we begin uh, this message, there is one, probably the most famous scene in all of Lord of the Rings, whether you've read the books or whether you've seen the movies, probably the most famous scene of all there captures today's message really in its essence. And it's a scene where all the heroes are in the underground mines of Moria and they're being pursued by these goblin armies and they are running trying to flee to get out of these underground mines. And as they're beginning to flee, they come to this great chasm and there's only one way to cross this chasm. It is over this slender, tiny little bridge called the Bridge of Khazad-dum. That has an ominous effect, doesn't it? This little narrow bridge goes over this seemingly bottomless abyss. And as they're getting there, in the darkness, they hear a terrifying growl. A growl that clearly is not human, that is not of this world. And so Boromir asks one of the main characters, Gandalf, he says, what is this new devilry? And Gandalf answers, it's a Belrog a demon of the ancient world. And then he turns to all the group and he says, this foe is beyond all of you. Run. And so they all start running. But Aragorn, he's one of the other heroes. He's a great warrior. He wants to stay and fight. 
But Gandalf turns to him, recognizing they're about to face a supernatural enemy, a Belrog, and Gandalf says to him, swords are of no use here. And then out of the flames arises the most evil creature imaginable. It stands probably 40 or 50 feet high. Uh, black wings stretch out of its back. Horns come around its face, breathes fire. Its whole body seems to be on fire. And Gandalf stands in the middle of this slender little bridge facing off against the Belrog. And the Belrog pulls out a sword, which is probably as long as three men. And Gandalf raises his staff, a little wooden staff with a stone on top of it. But this is no ordinary staff. We're not sure at this point in the story what's so great about this staff, but it looks not to be a fair fight, and yet there's white light that emanates from Gandalf's staff, and then Gandalf says these words to the Belrog. He says, I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. We still don't, we have no idea what that means, but what we, what's clearly communicated is Gandalf serves a higher power, and there's something about his staff that can engage with a supernatural being. And so the Belrog brings his sword down upon Gandalf, and Gandalf just simply raises his staff, and this little piece of wood with the stone inside of it, suddenly a giant white light emanates from it, and the sword of the Belrog just dissolves into nothing. Enraged, the Belrog then pulls out a flaming whip and begins to come towards Gandalf, but Gandalf stands his ground, raises the staff, and then puts it down on the bridge in probably one of the most iconic lines in all of literature and in all of film history, yells at the Belrog, do you want to say it together or should I just say it? <laughs> you shall not pass. <laughs> one of the greatest moments, and Ian McKellum is, who can ever, no one can play that role ever again. Such an incredible job on that scene. And of course, then you know the moment the staff comes down on the bridge, shatters the bridge, and then the Belrog tumbles and falls down into the bottomless abyss. That scene perfectly captures where we're trying to go today and what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, which is the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In the first three chapters, he's talked about how God saves us in Jesus Christ, how we become Christians. Then in chapters 3 to up to where we are today, he talks about how do you live now in this new life that Christ has given you. And then as he gets to the very end of the letter in chapter 6 and verse 10, he makes a little transition and says one little word. He says... Finally. Finally. Now, he doesn't mean by finally, hey, I'm kind of done my letter now. Let me summarize everything for you. That's not what he means. He means now that we've talked about all that God has done for us in Christ and how we live for him, guys, what he's trying to say to everybody in Ephesus, there is one more critical thing that I must talk with you about and that you must pay attention to in light of everything else that has been said. Okay, what's that, Paul? Here's what he says. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So Paul is saying that as you now strive to live out this new life in Christ that he's talked about for five, five and a half chapters, six and a half chapters really, he says you must realize that behind all of your struggles there is an unseen realm. 
He says there is such thing as supernatural evil, and he calls the, the, the leader of this evil the devil. In verse 10, he says the devil is joined uh, by an army of unseen evil spiritual beings. We talked a lot about this in the first week. If that's an idea that you would struggle to believe, go back to our first message on that. We dealt with it in detail. But Paul is saying it's critical that you understand this. Why is it so critical? Because as you start to try to live for Christ, you start to wonder, if Jesus has saved me, then why is this so hard? Why is it so hard for me to follow Christ? Why is is my heart so easily led towards sin? Why do I keep committing the same sins over and over again? Why is the world's whole system, why don't people just come to Christ? What is going on here that this is all so difficult? And the Bible's answer is that there are three forces which wage war against us. The Bible calls them the flesh, the world, and the devil. The flesh is not your skin. It is that inward nature of yours that wants to pull you towards sin. You have a war going on within you with your own heart, so to speak. The world is the world system. It's all of culture wherever it is against God, wherever it is organized in a way that is going to pull away from the things of God. And it is powerful. And then finally, there is what the Bible just calls, there's evil called the devil. So there's evil inside of us, the flesh, world outside of us, the world, and then it says there's evil above us, this unseen realm. And this is what Paul is getting at now. Unlike people who want to reduce evil in this world to psychology, to sociology, to biology, the Bible says there's truth in all that. But what Paul is trying to say to us is there's also such thing as an unseen realm, where there exists supernatural beings who are not for us. And what Paul is saying in our passage today is that there are many days when you will find yourself on the bridge of Khazad-dum. You will find yourself in a struggle, in a battle against unseen powers who are far more powerful than you. And so Paul has been trying to explain this to us, and so he, he begins by saying the first thing you need to, under, need to do is to understand your enemy. you got to know who your enemy is. So Gandalf knew who this enemy was. And so we spent, we spent two weeks now talking about who our enemy is and how he fights. That's critical. But you can't just stand there. Knowing who your enemy is is important, but that's really only half the battle. After that, you have to know how you can stand against your enemy. What kind of weapons do you have? How do you do this? And so that's where we're beginning to transition to now in this series. Paul does not merely describe our enemy. He also tells us how we can stand against him. Gandalf, in that great scene, of course, fell along with the Balrog into the abyss. What Paul says is, you don't have to do that. You can be victorious, and you can stand against powers that are far more powerful than you. So how do we do that? Paul calls us today to do two things, to rely on God's strength and to fight with God's weapons. Rely on God's strength and fight with God's weapons. So just going to look at those two things today. Our last message in kind of introducing the first part of this text. And then from here on in, we're going to look at each piece of the armor we're to put on. All right? So here's the first thing. Rely on God's strength. Rely on God's strength. Soon as you become a believer, this is one of the most important things you've got to understand. This is the key to victory, is to realize that strength does not come from within yourself to say, I am a great warrior, I can do this. It's rather to rely on a strength greater than your own, to look to Christ 
to enable you to stand. But how do we practically do that? That's where I want to go this morning. Again, very practical message. How do we practically strengthen ourselves in the Lord so we can follow what Paul is saying here? Let me suggest two things to you. Here's the first. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped over. That's the verse we're looking at. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We're talking now about how do we be strong in the Lord. All right, next slide. Cultivate a sense of your own weakness in comparison to your enemy. Use the word cultivate, as in keep doing it. Not, not a one-time thing where you're just like, okay, yeah, the enemy's more powerful than me. No, cultivate it. Continually meditate it on it. Think on it about how weak you are in comparison to the enemy that you stand against. See, here's the thing. You'll never seek Jesus' strength to stand until you become convinced that you actually need it, that you become convinced of your weakness. We, just in life, we do this all the time. You don't ask anyone else for help until you realize you can't do it yourself. But when you come across something like, I don't know, moving a piano, you say, I need help. I cannot do this on my own. Same thing in our spiritual walks. We must first really realize how weak we actually are. So just think this through with me for a moment in your own heart. Remember, first of all, what short work the devil has made of people far greater than you or far greater than me. Start with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are there in the garden. They're sinless. They walk and talk with God. So unlike you, they don't have that battle of the flesh within them. They don't have that battle with the world outside of them. They only have the battle above them, which they're about to learn about. They're at a greater advantage than you and I. And yet, what did it take the serpent? A couple of minutes to make short work of them both. Cultivate that and realize, if he can do that to sinless beings... What can he do to someone like me? Remember that in Jude 9, we read about the great archangel Michael, probably the next greatest being in the universe as far as we can understand it, after God, after the, in the created realm, after the devil. Seems like he's the greatest. Not totally sure, but seems like it. We read in Jude 9 that even the great archangel Michael does not take on the devil on his own. Rather, he says to him in Jude 9, the Lord rebuke you. He doesn't even have strength to stand against the devil. He says, the Lord rebuke you. Remember what the devil has done and what short work he has made of even the greatest of saints. Think of King David, a man after God's own heart, and yet when he was at the height of his leadership, the height of all of his powers, so to speak, he commits adultery with Bathsheba and a whole lot of other sins. Think, for instance, of Moses, again, at the height of his respect, the height of his leadership, it is then that in anger he strikes the rock and falls. Think of Peter, walked with Jesus for three years. You think after three years of walking with Jesus himself, you're strong now. He denies him three times in the hour of greatest need. Look to the stories of those who are greater than us, but then just look at your own general experience. I mean, how much defeat have you experienced in your own life? How many sins have you said, I'll never do that again? You've been so sure you'll never do it again. You're convinced this time, and you do it again. How many times have you just thought, oh, I don't know, all my, these doubts that come into me, you just doubt everything you've ever believed. It's hard to just continue believing, let alone actually living it. 
Oh, we need to cultivate a sense of our own weakness. And when we do that, what it should do in us, not to make us, like, push us down or something, but to recognize we need a strength far greater than our own. But don't stop there. That would just be to wallow in pity or just to stay looking at your own weaknesses. Don't stay there. Here's the second way you can do it. Cultivate a sense of Jesus' superior strength in comparison to your enemy. So cultivate a sense of your own weakness, but then move on to cultivating a sense of the strength of Christ who has far greater power, not only than you, but of course, than of the evil one himself. Gandalf did not stand against the Belrog in his own strength. He said he's a servant of the secret fire. He wields a weapon which is supernatural. We don't know all what that meant in Lord of the Rings, but it's the same for us. You cannot stand against the powers of darkness by yourself. You can only stand when you recognize and when you cultivate that idea that you, like Gandalf, are a servant of a greater power, a servant of our master, our Lord, the sovereign king over the universe, Jesus Christ. So just as you cultivate a sense of your weakness, also cultivate a sense of how powerful Christ is. I mean, remember, for instance, Christ, when he came to this world, engaged with the devil himself in temptation, and Jesus did not waver, Jesus did not fall. He withstood the temptations where all else failed, where everyone else failed. He stood strong. Remember, as Colossians 1 says, he disarmed the powers and authorities, that is the evil spirits. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He triumphed over them at the cross. Remember that the other one great enemy that you or I could never beat, that no one has beat on our own strength is death itself. And yet Christ conquers not only the devil, he conquers the grave. And then remember that a day is coming. Oh, a day is coming when the war will end. And as Paul says at the end of the book of Romans, one of the shortest but most glorious phrases, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That day is coming when Christ will return, and he will not just, he's already defeated him. On that day, he will destroy him. And I don't know how you imagine the end. Sometimes, again, this is where Christian fiction can make us go crazy. Don't go crazy. The world does not end in some giant, this is not the time for the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings ends with some giant, huge battle, and you think everything's going to be lost. Is that how the end of the story ends when Christ returns? Oh, no. There is no great battle when Christ returns. There's a great battle, all right, going on down here, but that battle ends and the devil is finally defeated simply by Jesus showing up. He just arrives, he speaks, and it's all over. There is no battle. That's because he is so much more powerful there is no need for it. He speaks, and we read that the devil will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. This is our Lord. This is the master that we serve, someone of such greater power and strength. And so we got to cultivate a mind that habitually focuses on the superior strength of Christ. This is how you fight in the strength of the Lord in the power of his might, always cultivating that sense of who he is. And of course, one of the greatest ways you do that is just through prayer. 
Notice how Paul connects the armor of God to prayer in verse 18. Here's what he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. That the, isn't that what prayer is always? I am weak, I humble myself, and then I look to him who is greater and stronger. Isn't that the, literally the definition of prayer? I've for many years followed a practice that I learned from Martin Luther who wrote that hymn that we sang earlier on, that 500-year-old hymn. It was said that Martin Luther went to bed at night praying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, at the end of the day, often what we need most is forgiveness for the day. But then he woke up every morning, and one of his first prayers every morning was, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So as we begin the day, that's what we need, because that prayer is a child's prayer to our heavenly Father. We are the children of God. We are coming to our Father, and we are saying, Father, we are children. We are easily deceived. Father, don't let us be led into paths that go towards temptation where pits are led, put out for us that we are so foolish we would just walk into. Don't let us be led there, Father. And Father, if somehow we should, if we walk near the edge of one of those pits, Father, we just pray you would deliver us. You come and snatch us away from the pits that the evil one would dig for us. Oh, Father, as we go into this day, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. As soon as you pray that, you are cultivating your own weakness and you're cultivating a sense of God's superior strength. Really, this entire series could just simply be a long explanation of why we need to pray that sixth and last petition of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What is your day of evil? What is your bridge of doom? Look to Christ, and as Paul says, strengthen yourself in the Lord. Say, my Lord and my Master, I am weak, I am easily defeated. And I'm looking to you to strengthen me, to stand against the power of the enemy. So, that's the first part of what Paul says about how we stand. We must rely on on the Lord's strength in comparison to our own weakness. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing we're going to talk about today. we got to fight with God's weapons. Fight with God's weapons. Look now at verses 11 and 13. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then almost the same thing two verses later. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. When Gandalf stood against the Belrog, he knew that swords, normal human swords, have no strength against a supernatural enemy. Supernatural adversaries require supernatural weapons. And so he used his supernatural weapon, his staff, with the white light, and Gandalf served that supernatural power, and so he engaged with a supernatural weapon. Here is exactly what we need to hear now. We see that God has provided us with armor, and it's God's armor, not our armor. It's the armor that God gives to us. If we put it on, we can stand against our supernatural enemy. So let me show you three things about what it means to fight with the weapons that God provides. And then next week and on the rest of fall, we'll talk about each of them individually. Here's the first thing. We must put on God's armor, not the armor that we think will work best. 
We've got to put on God's armor, the, God, the armor that God supplies for us. So look at verse 11. Just notice this emphasis. Put on the whole armor of God. Notice that emphasis. Same as verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. I don't know about you, but I, I, I grew up in the church, and so this phrase, armor of God, just kind of, it almost just goes right over my head because I've heard it so many times in my life. For me, I just like to flip it around because it drives home the point to me. I want to say, all right, got to put on the armor that God gives to me. God's armor is what I need. Just flipping the words around for me somehow just puts a freshness to it that I, I'm not just talking about some cliche phrase that I've heard my whole life. i got to go, okay, there's armor that God gives. I need God's armor to put on. Just as you do not fight a Belrog with a sword, you do not fight the father of lies with mere common sense, willpower, or anything else, greater resolve. Remember last week we talked about how the devil always attacks with deception. It's always lies because he's a liar and the father of lies. So what we learn from that then is that at the root of so many of our problems are lies that we believe. At the root of addictions to pornography, there are lies that are believed. At the root of eating disorders, there are lies that people are believing. Lies about standards of beauty, lies about human value and where we get it from, lies about where we get pleasure and how we can achieve it. There's lies underneath all of it. So what do we need then to fight the adversary's lies? There's a 20th century pastor named James Boyce, and he connects I think well for us, what we're trying to say here, what God provides for us. Here's what he writes. What do we need if we are to fight against Satan? Is it truth? Yes. We need truth, but not just any truth. We need God's own truth, the truth of God, which we find in Scripture. So it's God's truth. Then he goes on. Do we need righteousness? Yes. But not just human righteousness. We need the righteousness of God. The gospel? It's God's gospel, God's good news. Peace, is that what we need? Yes, but it's God's peace that we need. Faith, yes, it is the faith from God, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Is it salvation we need? Yes, it's God's salvation. We must be armed with him. So here's what I would do, I thought we could do right now. I want to make this just so practical for us. And again, like last week, I want to just try to help us practically to know how we put on the armor of God. So let's take some time right now, and I want to do a little case scenario with you. Do a little bit, let's do some public counseling, shall we? For all of us, I'm counseling myself. I'm counseling all of us. We're going to just work through one particular topic, taking the armor that God gives us and applying it to this one particular subject in our lives. And that subject is anxiety or fear over our need for material possessions. So the anxiety or fear that you feel when you're not sure if you're going to make it, if you're not sure if you're going to be able to get a job, when you're scared about the future for are you going to be able to afford to live somewhere, are you going to have enough food on the table, are you going to get paid enough to be able to live in Victoria, that's, that's a hard one. Are you going to, all, all these kind of things that come along, the anxiety to do with everything to do with money, and our needs in this world. That's what I want to apply it to. Now, on one level, I suppose you could say there's a certain type of anxiety that's good, that anxiety that just gets you up off the couch and gets you going to find a job and go to work in the morning. Uh, the Bible does not say nice things about people who are lazy, especially in the book of Proverbs. If you're lazy, the Bible has a lot to say about you got to get going. So there's something about it that just gets us, up, gets us going in the morning. But 
What the evil one does is he takes that good, if we could call it good anxiety, I don't know, and he puts it into overdrive so that your mind and your heart begin to become consumed with worry, with anxiety, and with fear. So you get, your thoughts get consumed. What if everything falls apart? What if I don't get a job? What if I, what, how am I going to provide for myself? How am I going to provide for my family? How, how am I going to make it through? And these things, they begin to get into your head. And, and if you're anything like me, sometimes they consume you. Sometimes that worry just can take over in your mind. And they steal all of your joy. So I'll give you an instant. Remember, I'm counseling myself as much as you. Give you an instance when this totally took over my mind and I really, I mean, I was, I was fighting a Belrog in that moment, probably for a week. And it's a story I don't think I've shared with you before, but uh, it has to do with me and my time when I came to Central. So I pastored a church in Vancouver called Dunbar Heights Baptist Church for 13 years. Had really no plans of leaving Dunbar at all, but then God just does stuff. It was pretty incredible. Uh, long story short, started to feel like Central called me, said, hey, would you be interested in this this role here, and uh, I said, wow, God's doing some things that I, I think I'll actually have this conversation. Other churches had called, and it was always like, well, I just don't think it's time right now. Uh, I don't think it's time for us to move. Central called. Some things lined up. We thought, all right, we'll have this conversation and see where the Lord takes it. Well, we went through this whole process with the interview process, and you guys grilled me and put me through everything in order to get here. And we got right near the end of the process. I think it was probably actually the week before or the week after when I came here, and for a whole weekend I met everyone, and you peppered me with questions, put me on the hot seat, and I spoke and all that kind of stuff. At that time, simultaneously at my previous church, now people were beginning to find out. Some of the key people had found out because we're long and far into the process now. And I remember one night lying awake at like midnight and suddenly realizing the idea that it's very possible within a few weeks I could have no job. Because what I thought was, if things don't work out at Central, if that goes south, I'm not sure I can continue on at Dunbar Heights because... Can you really go back once you've, you've talked to key people in the church and you've said, hey, I'm looking at moving on now and all that? Things change. As soon as the pastor says they're moving on, things change in people's hearts. I mean, maybe you can recover it. I don't know. But uh, I suddenly realized I might not get central and I might not be able to continue on at Dunbar Heights. I literally might not have a job and I've got four children and yeah, how's that going to work? So I woke up the next morning, and I don't know why, I can't even tell you, maybe it was exactly Ephesians 6 in my mind, but literally for an entire week, my mind was consumed with worry and anxiety and fear to do with just being provided for. I hadn't really been in that place. I mean, for 13 years, steady job, uh, the church in Vancouver had a house for us, so I never had to worry about rent or mortgage or anything like that. It was great. Note to self, central, you want to provide it? No, just kidding. We don't need to go there. The Lord's provided in other ways. It's all good. Every morning what I did then, as I faced off against this Belrog of fear and anxiety and worry, I thought to myself, man, this is consuming me. What is happening right now? I couldn't even focus at all. And so I thought, I need to strengthen myself in the power of the Lord and in his might. I need to take out the sword of the Spirit. And as I was thinking about all these things, I thought, where, what's the best scripture I could go to to put on the belt of truth, to teach myself truth? Because there are, there are lies in my head right now, and there's things I'm struggling with. So what's some truth I can learn? What's a sword that I can go to? In my view, there's probably almost no better place to go to in all of scripture than Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, where he directly took talks about this issue of anxiety and fear to do with material things. 
So I began to think, how do, how do you stand against this Belrog of fear? Well, willpower didn't make much of a difference for me. I've got to be honest with you. You can't just say, I will not worry, I will not worry, I will not worry. I don't know, i got four kids in schools. I need to have schools provided for. I have a lot of things that got to get figured out. Common sense didn't help me a lot either. Just kind of, well, it doesn't solve anything if you worry. I know that. But I have four kids who, <laughs> it's pretty easy to kind of defeat common sense in those moments. And so I went to the armor of God in Matthew chapter 6, and every single morning for about a half an hour, I would read, meditate, and study it. And then often in the evening, I would have to come back again because I found myself back on the bridge of Khazad-dum again later in the day. And what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 6, this is the best words. Here's how he begins in verse 25. He begins by saying, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So in Jesus' kingdom, he doesn't want his kingdom citizens, God the Father doesn't want his children struggling with anxiety over their physical needs. And what Jesus does is he goes on and he gives us at least eight truths to buckle around our waist, the belt of truth, eight truths to defeat lies that cause us to worry and to fear. We don't have time to do that this morning, and so I'm going to give you three, all right? The short version. First of all, he points us to the birds and he says this, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then Jesus turns around, Jesus, the speaker of all truth, and he says to us, are you not of more value than they? they. So first thing Jesus is saying is, use your mind. Think. Think about things. First, go outside, watch the birds. I literally was doing this in this week. I go, okay, Jesus, I'll, I'll follow this literally. Watch the birds of the air. Think about them. What do they do? First of all, they're not lazy. They work hard. Okay, am I being lazy? No, not in this situation. I'm not. I'm working hard. Okay. If God feeds them, won't he care more for you? And here's the truth that comes in. Here's the truth that defeats some of the lies. You are made in the image of God. You're one of his children. He loves you, and you're more valuable even than the birds. And if he provides for the birds, don't you think that your father will provide for you? Oh, wow. That's a supernatural weapon against worry and evil and fear that God the Father places great value on his children and we're more valuable. But then secondly, he says not to worry about the necessities of life because our Heavenly Father knows that we need them. Here's how he continues. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear or where are my kids going to go to school or how am I going to get a job? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So don't be like the world, Jesus is saying. The world's consumed because they have to be. They're not looking to a higher power. They're not looking to Christ. So they have to be consumed with anxiety of always working at these things. But you don't have to do that because your heavenly Father loves you. He cares for you. He knows you. So if God is taking, I was thinking to myself, if God wants to take us to Victoria, then he'll provide these things. It all came down to, this is one of the greatest things for me as I realized, of course, I got to consider the housing market in Victoria. I have to think about all these matters and figure out how and where my kids are going to go to school and all that. But the single and only question that really mattered at the end of the day was, does God want us to go to Central Baptist Church? That's the only question that really matters. Because if he wants that, then what this is saying is, he'll provide for us. Okay. Finally, since our Father knows we need them, he makes this promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, that is the food on your table, the clothes on your back, the roof over your head, these things 
will be added to you as well. So that, that was the promise I banked on. And that's the promise that brought me so much freedom all the time. Okay, Jesus, I am seeking your kingdom. All I want is to serve you. All I want is to be where you want me to be. And if you want to uproot all of our life right now in Vancouver, which quite frankly we had a pretty great life and a really great ministry going on in Vancouver, if you want to uproot this and you want to bring us to Central, then may your will be done. That's all that matters. And so I had to keep checking my heart. Okay, what's my motivations here? But Jesus, I want to seek your kingdom and your righteousness. I just want to serve you. And what Jesus is saying is, if that's what you're doing, you don't need to fret about all those other things because God will add them to you as well. And that's exactly what he did. And I'm sure all of you, as the older you get, you can trace more of this in your own life. And you could tell your own stories. And he provided a house for us. He provided everything, of course. Eventually, it came together. But somehow, back in those moments in Vancouver at 6.30 in the morning when I'm praying and filled with worry, that's when I was standing on the bridge and having to face down the belrog of fear and worry and anxiety. So you see, worries and anxieties about future necessities They really come to us because we believe lies. Think about it. What is worry? The only reason we worry is because we think, ready for this? God can't handle it. I need to fret and worry because I'm not really convinced that God can take care of this and lead me through this. Think it through. At the bottom, it's a lack of trust it's a lack of confidence in who God is for us. And so we think, I've got to fret. I've got to worry. I've got to fear. Because if I don't do it, everything's going to fall apart. Ah, but Jesus is saying, children, I don't want people in my kingdom to have to fret and worry. I want you to live free. I don't want this a part of your life. And so we defeat the lies and the emotional turmoil that quite frankly comes to us. We stand against the belrog of fear by putting on the armor of God, by meeting the lies with truth. And so we must put on the armor of God, God's armor, not just the armor that we think best. That's the first thing. So we're still talking now about how to fight with God's weapons. Here's the second thing. We must put on the complete armor of God, not just the pieces we like best. This is a short point, but it's just an important one to note. Notice carefully with me in verse 11 that it does not say, put on the armor of God. That's not what it says. What's the word that's missing? It does not say, put on the armor of God. Put on, let's say, verse 11, the whole armor of God. Same in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And then he goes on in verses 14 to 18 to list those six pieces that we're going to look at in the weeks to come. So the point should be clear. In order to successfully stand against whatever Belrog it might be, in order to live a victorious Christian life, you've got to put on the whole armor, all the pieces that we're going to outline over the weeks to come, realizing that you probably have weak points, and there may be certain parts of the armor that you're pretty effective at putting on, but others you've got to really learn how to put on. So that's a simple point, but one that we need to draw out. And now here's the final thing we'll talk about today, how to put on the armor. We must put on the complete armor before the battle begins, not in the middle of the attack. Now, you can put it on in the middle of the attack, 
But what I'm trying to push you to, and I want to, what, I want, what, you, what I want you to see here, is you've got to put it on before the attack. So notice with me in verse 13. Here's what it says. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Put it all on. Here's the key little word. That. Put it all on so that what are you going to be able to do if you have the armor of God on already? What are you going to be able to do? You may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So we're to put it on so that when that day comes, we're prepared for that day. So, I mean, it's just ridiculous to even imagine this, but the image here of a warrior not prepared for battle. I mean, imagine a castle and the arrows are flying everywhere and the the battering rams come through the door and the enemy's pouring through with their swords and their, their axes. You know, there's some soldier sitting there on a lawn chair in his house coat and slippers or something. You don't ever see that. It's just so ridiculous. You'd be like, you don't even put that into a movie. It's so dumb. But that's the image here. Have you gone into the day with just a house coat and slippers on? Or have you put the armor of God on? I want to impress this deeply upon us. The reason why so many of us are not living the victorious Christian lives that we want, the reason why we are often so defeated is because we've neglected to put the armor on before the battle. And so we need to see and we need to listen to these verses realizing that Paul is calling us to take this seriously, that we would not get beaten to the ground or fall. Take that whole fear of the future thing again. What will, be, what will save you from anxiety and fear? Maybe like me, you need to go spend a week just in Matthew 6 and in that passage. Maybe you need to study it. You need to memorize it. You need to get it into your mind. So then you're beginning to think through issues of worry and of anxiety so that when you finally find yourself in that place, like me, at least you'll know where to go. Uh, you can go back there all the time. You've already got some thoughts ready, and you will be able to stand on that bridge facing down that Belrog of fear, and you can say to that Belrog, you shall not pass. In other words, I will not give in to this anxiety and fear. I will not believe the lies that God cannot be trusted on all my physical necessities. He's promised me that if I will seek him first, if I will put his kingdom and his righteousness first, he's going to add all these other things to me as well. And if you do that, the bridge will break, the Belrog will fall, but unlike Gandalf, you will not fall. You will stand firm. So let's put all this together and wrap it up to end. Everything we're saying today shows us one of the great errors that we often fall into as Christians. They're really, it's really two errors, and they're equal but opposites, opposite errors. Like two sides of a coin, they're both wrong. The first error is to think of the Christian life as something passive. And I hear this kind of thing a lot when I'm speaking with Christians where they should be doing some action, but their language is, no, you know, we just got to leave the battle to the Lord. We've got to let go and let God. We've got to let God do his thing. We're not doing anything. We've got to hand it over to him. Now, sometimes that is the right thing to say. That is the right answer. But when there's action to be taken, sometimes that's the wrong thing to say. The opposite error is to be so active in serving and doing all these kind of things. There's no prayer life. There's no reading of the word. It's just a whole lot of doing and doing and no coming before God in humility and seeking his strength. But notice in this passage that Paul's admonition to us corrects both of these. Notice on the one hand, you and I, we're supposed to do something. What are we supposed to do? Put on the armor of God. We have to do something. We're not just to sit back and say, oh, it's God's battle. He'll win the battle for us. No, 
We're supposed to put on the armor. We are supposed to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. We must do something. However, in the second place, it's not all about us. We're strengthening ourselves in the Lord. We're putting on the armor that God provides. And it is the strength of the Lord that enables us to fight the battle and to stand. Everywhere the Bible Never, well, let's put it this way. Never does the Bible want to pit God's sovereign power against our responsibility. And we often fall into error on either of these sides. The Bible marries these two things. We are responsible, and God is utterly sovereign. And you can't always discern exactly how, where the one meets and where the other goes. But the call of this passage is not to let go and let God. It is in the words of J.I. Packer, to trust God and get going. Or in the words of the old military general, Oliver Cromwell, trust in God and keep your powder dry. You got to do both. We must fight, but the battle is the Lord's. So as we come now to prepare our hearts for communion, I want us to sing that song that you'll know well if you've been in church at all in the last few years, and it's that song, Lord, I Need You. Probably the greatest expression that we could say this morning and sing this morning of where we've been as we come to that chorus, we're, we're singing, Jesus, you are my one defense. You're the one who can defend me. You are my righteousness. Don't misunderstand that. We're not thinking, singing about our own righteousness. It's your my righteousness. Jesus, you're my righteousness. I'm looking to you. Lord, I need you in every way. So let's humble our hearts as we come to prepare them for communion. And let's seek him. Let's just pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that we the truths that we learn in it that defeat the evil one, that show us the power of the deceptive lies we often believe. And Lord, we confess we often find ourselves in so much emotional turmoil because we have not believed the truth. And even this morning, forgive us when we worry, when we're filled with anxiety, when we don't think that you can handle things. Forgive us when we do that and help us to put our trust wholly in you. Lord, we need you. We need you every hour. We need you every moment. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.